Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. I'm your host, Mike Waller. It was a bittersweet day at Wrigley Field Tuesday as the Cubs won their sixth straight while fans likely said goodbye to Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ. It was a beautiful, emotional day that began with a standing ovation for Contreras and ended after multiple standing ovations, a victory celebration, and a long hug between Contreras and Happ. I'll talk more in a few minutes about the potential for trades, what those trades mean for this team, and what the trades this year and last say about the current management strategy. But first, let's talk about the good stuff from the game on Tuesday. The Cubs got out quickly in the first inning. After Rafael Ortega grounded out to start the inning, Contreras got his first ovation of the day and was visibly blinking back his tears while raising his helmet to the fans. It was a special moment, and frankly, one the Cubs should have given Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant last year when they didn't make an appearance in what most fans knew would be their last home game in Cubby Blue. But again, more on that in a bit. Contreras cleared his eyes, hit a soft line drive on the first pitch from Bryce Wilson to center. Seiya Suzuki then doubled to right, moving Contreras to third. Ian Happ was up next and pulled a hard line drive to right field, scoring the first two runs of the game. Nico Horner, who will be featured later in today's last segment, stayed hot, shooting a double down the right field line, scoring Happ. From there, it was the Keegan Thompson show. Keegan absolutely shoved Tuesday, going seven innings, allowing only four hits and two unearned runs in seven innings, with no walks and seven strikeouts. Say attacked on an insurance run with an absolute rocket that hit a light post in left field in the eighth, and Michael Givens, another potential trade candidate, got his second save of the year with a 1-2-3 ninth. As Go Cubs Go blasted, Contreras began Hugfest 2022, grabbing everyone on the roster, including getting a big bear hug from Rossi that lifted Wilson up off the ground, before heading into the dugout to take in the scene. The buzz of the quick homestand focused heavily on the potential trades, especially Contreras, but the Cubs stayed hot, extending their season-long winning streak and sweeping their second straight series. This streak, sweeping three in Philadelphia and a two-gamer at home against Pittsburgh to build on the win in the last game before the break against the Mets, has broken a lot of the tendencies the Cubs built up through the first half of the season. The Cubs have struggled all year scoring consistently and putting up crooked numbers. In the last 10 games before the break, which was a nine-game losing streak followed by the win against the Mets, the Cubs scored more than one run in an inning only five times. That all changed after the All-Star break. The Cubs posted three crooked numbers against the Phillies just on Friday. In these five games, the Cubs have posted a crooked number seven times, including a three-run first today. They also scored five in an extra inning 6-2 win against the Phillies on Saturday, a potentially hopeful sign after a long stretch of ineptitude and bonus play through most of the season. The best sign, however, has been the starting pitching. With so many injuries in the rotation, as discussed in the first three episodes, Kyle Hendricks, Marcus Stroman, Wade Miley, Drew Smiley, and Adbert Azale have all missed substantial time. A surprisingly scrappy starting rotation has struggled to get through the fifth, which has really taxed the bullpen. In the five wins since the break, the starters have averaged more than six innings per start. Thompson and Adrian Sampson each won a full seven. They've kept the pitch counts down, minimized the walks, and given up only five earned runs in those 31 innings. They've posted better than a three-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio, these outings are showing growth and keeping the Cubs in ball games. Keegan was particularly impressive Tuesday, striking out seven Pirates and getting another eight outs on three pitches or less. With the emotion of what may have been the last home game at Wrigley Field for Contreras and Happ behind them, the Cubs start a four-game series with a 48-50 and 50 San Francisco Giants tonight. We'll see if the starting pitching can keep the streak alive, as the Cubs will throw Steele, Stroman, Smiley, and Sampson in this series. That'll basically take the Cubs to the trade deadline. The Cubs have Monday off, and their game Tuesday in St. Louis will start after the Major League Baseball trade deadline expires. What will the Cubs do this time? There seem to be guys here who can be part of the next core, but how will Jed Hoyer work and evolve that core? 
We won't get those answers for a while, certainly not until the team has sold off the remaining guys from the old core. But if you look at the current Cubs team, I think the model seems pretty clear. Jed has been targeting players with positional flexibility who can make contact and get on base. Looking through that lens, trading Hap might actually make some sense. He's having a great season. He's clearly a guy who's had to work through a lot of offensive struggles, including completely rebuilding a swing in the minors in 2019 at a time when I'm sure he was convinced he was good enough to be in the big leagues. But he's never put together a full 162. He's had boom halves. He's had bust halves. He had a great season in 2020, but it was 60 games. The ability to show sustained success is something he hasn't proven yet, although his stretch from last August through so far this year has been really good. The Cubs may be selling high on a guy for once, something they never did with Kyle Schwarber, and doing so at a time when they may have the ability to fill that hole next year, whether it's through free agency or through young outfielders coming up through the system. But the Cubs are actually going to have to do it. Of course, the Cubs went through all this last year on an even bigger scale when they traded away Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, and Javi Baez on a day a lot of fans have called Blue Friday. Those trades were not unexpected, but it really was a depressing end to what had been the best run in franchise history. Rizzo, KB, Javi, Contreras were all key players in what started as a young core and made five playoff appearances in six seasons, making three straight National League Championship Series appearances, winning three division titles, and of course the 2016 World Series win. If and when Contreras is traded, that will leave the Cubs with only Kyle Hendricks and Jason Hayward on the current roster from the 2016 World Series winner. It's really frustrating as a fan to watch these players move on. We saw a young core come in together, win together, and now they're all leaving together. They were never able to sustain that core. The Cubs have sustained large payrolls to win, so I don't buy the argument that the Ricketts won't spend money to win. But they never took the next step to transition the core. They were never going to have all those guys, Rizzo, KB, Javi, Contreras, Schwarber, play together for a decade. That's just not how it works. But it's still pretty astonishing and disappointing they didn't pick one or two of those guys and extend so that they could bridge effectively one core into the next. That's how the Los Angeles Dodgers win the National League West for a decade straight. When you look across sports, the best franchises don't develop a core, get rid of it entirely, and then start over. They evolve over time. You have some aging veterans and you bring in some young players, then eventually those young players are the aging veterans and you have a new wave. Some guys you get rid of in the middle. Some guys maybe become a little too expensive for what you're trying to do, or maybe it makes sense to trade from a position of strength to cover an area of weakness somewhere else. But you pick a couple of players to keep and extend them and use them in addition to the up-and-coming players and some freedom in payroll to really build out the next core. When I look back to last year, though, well, not much has changed in terms of overall competitiveness. You know, The Cubs were not a good team last year. They're not a good team this year. This year's trade deadline does have a different vibe. A year ago, the Cubs went into Blue Friday having lost three straight, getting dominated at home by the Cincinnati Reds. And we're only a couple weeks past having lost 11 straight to really signal the end of that era. The trades were inevitable, the team was not performing, and the Cubs had already moved on from fan favorites before the season even started when they traded Hugh Darvish to the San Diego Padres and didn't offer a contract to slugging left fielder Kyle Schwarber. In the end, the Cubs would limp to the finish with a 71-91 and record last year and a lot of holes to fill for 2022. This year, as sad as it will be to say goodbye to Contreras and possibly Hap, there now appears to be a path forward, 
and the Cubs have been playing well lately, led by Horner and rookies Seiya Suzuki and Christopher Morel. Patrick Wisdom has shown that his power surge in 2021 was not a fluke, and some other young players have started to emerge. Nelson Velazquez is showing big power. He homered three times in the Philadelphia series, and young pitching is finally, 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 finally coming up through the system. Justin Steele and Keegan Thompson have each developed new pitches during this season, and Adrian Sampson has had a surprising run, having gone at least five and a third innings in each of his last five starts. Sampson doesn't have prospect status as a 30-year-old, but he's shown he can throw in long relief and get some distance in starts. He'll be cost-controlled for next year, so he can be a valuable depth piece in a world where good teams need to go in with eight starting pitchers or more as, as options for the rotation. If a staff stays healthy, those other guys are invaluable out of the pen or can be used to as trade bait to help fill another hole during the season. Some other young pitching that's come up, the bullpen's been strong. Scott Efrost particularly has stood out. He's been outstanding this year. He may wind up being their closer once David Robertson is traded. The Cubs do stand to get worse and potentially significantly worse after the deadline. So just because they're playing well now doesn't mean it's going to continue. If the Cubs do trade Contreras and Hap along with closer David Robertson, set-up man Michael Givens, and potentially Drew Smiley, Rafael Ortega, and Patrick Wisdom, that will create a number of holes and remove some of the top performers from the lineup. We'll see where the returns are as these trades happen. There are a lot of rumors of package deals, including at least two from the group of Contreras, Happ, and Robertson that could be put together to get the Cubs a higher-level prospect or prospects who are closer to the major leagues. Also, don't rule out a potential deal where the Cubs trade with the San Diego Padres and agree to take on the contract of first baseman Eric Hosmer in exchange for a higher-grade return. Hosmer isn't worth the $13 million he's making per season starting next year through 2025, but he could fill what's been a disappointing production gap at first base until the Cubs find a longer-term replacement. Hosmer's contract has been a bad one for San Diego, but at least this season is the last of his $20 million-plus years. Of course, the ultimate outcome of these trades will be determined by what the Cubs get in return. The Cubs appear to have done well in last year's deals, and Contreras, Robertson, and Happ should all have strong demand this year, so they may get a further boom to a farm system already regarded as one of baseball's top 10. Again, though, the farm system isn't a guaranteed future major league roster. The Cubs had holes to fill at first base, shortstop, third base, left field, and the bullpen after last year's trades, on top of what were already holes at starting pitcher, second base, center field, and right field. The Cubs seem to have capably filled shortstop with Horner, right field with Saya, and left field with Happ. Morrell and Ortega are filling the hole at center field, and Morrell is helping at second base. Wisdom has made third base an above-average position defensively. Trading Contreras leaves a gap at catcher and DH, and Happ would leave a big gap in left field. If they can keep just one of those guys, it would go a long way towards shortening the rebuild window. Prospects are great, but it looked like Brennan Davis would be in Chicago this season before a poor start and a back injury wrecked his 2022 season. Braylon Marquez and Miguel Amaya looked like locks to be part of this roster a couple years ago, but they haven't been able to shake injuries, although Amaya did return to action this week and hit a home run in the minors. Braylon Marquez effectively hasn't pitched live game situations in three years. We'll talk more about what next year looks like after the trade deadline. If trading those guys brings back talent that's close to Major League ready, that could help shorten the window. But prospects don't just happen, and they don't always pan out. Last year, it looked like the Craig Kimball trade to the White Sox might be the bridge to enable a quick window. But the reality so far is that Cody Hoyer looked great last year, then tore his UCL and had Tommy John surgery. And Nick Madrigal didn't hit at all and has now missed over a month after being injured most of last season. The struggle of the trade deadline is that you can never have enough prospects, but the question marks around prospects make it dicey to send proven players out of town. If there is a cause for hope, it's what we've seen from the Cubs player development system over the past couple of years. There's been a lot of talk about the pitch lab and the way in which the Cubs are developing pitching, but the Cubs system seems to have really taken a big stride in developing hitters as well. Several guys who are having success this year have drastically cut back their strikeout rate and increased their hard contact rate. Among that group are Hap Wisdom and most notably Nico Horner. 
Nico is a 25-year-old shortstop who was picked by the Cubs in the first round of the 2018 draft. He went 24th overall out of Stanford. He's a really athletic kid who grew up in Oakland. He played soccer, basketball, and baseball in high school. His senior year, he hit over 500, and while he wasn't drafted, he did move on to play for a strong Stanford Cardinal baseball team. At Stanford, he started from his freshman season and was named All-Pac-12 as a sophomore and a junior. When the Cubs drafted him, he was a middle infielder who played great defense, had elite speed, and made a lot of contact for average. He's not a guy with power. That's largely how he's moved through the Cubs system. He started out in the Arizona League in 2018 and was quickly moved through Eugene to high A South End by July. But shortly after, he suffered a strained elbow and missed the rest of the season. In 2019, he was assigned to AA Tennessee, where he played well defensively and had a 284, 344, 399 slash line, showing his ability to hit for average but not power. And again, missed a couple months after getting hit by a pitch in his left wrist. Horner's career really jumped up a notch at the end of the 2019 season. His minor league season was over and he was back home, but the Cubs were really struggling late in the season and at risk of missing the playoffs for the first time since 2014. And the Cubs called him up in September when Javi Baez was hurt and the Cubs were caught without much at shortstop. He went three for five with four RBIs in his first game, including a hit in his first major league at bat. Just more than a calendar year after being drafted, Horner was a big leaguer. He slashed 282, 305, and 436 in 20 games as a rookie and set expectations really high. He's stuck in the big leagues from there, but as young players do, he's had his struggles. He's just had to figure them all out at the major league level. Through it all, he's been way above average defensively, a great base runner, and a high contact guy. 2020 was his worst season, posting a 61 WRC plus and a 57 OPS plus. I'm going to take an aside here and talk about some statistics. I tend to use OPS plus more often than WRC plus, but the two stats do correlate really well, even though they measure different things. OPS plus is a baseball reference statistic that takes OPS, which is simply on-base percentage plus slugging percentage, and makes adjustments for park factors and overall performance of the league in order to normalize league average at 100. WRC plus is a statistic from Fangraphs that stands for Weighted Runs Created Plus. This stat measures singles, doubles, triples, home runs, non-intentional walks, and hit-by-pitches separately in order to create a measure of run creation. Like OPS+, Plus, 100 is league average. Throughout episodes of this podcast, I may use one or the other, but each will give roughly the same approximation of how above or below average a hitter is overall. But back to Nico, he's an 85 WRC+, plus in those first 20 games, then a 61 the next season. 2021 was his first full normal season in the bigs, and he got back to doing what he did in college in the minors. He had 300 with a high contact rate, but limited pop. His 2021 WRC plus was 104, which, as I explained above, correlates very closely to an OPS plus of 105. Like almost every season of his pro career, Nico missed a lot of games with injury. While he's been hurt a lot, it's been a lot of one-off things. He strained his elbow in 2019. He got hit by a pitch. He missed time this year when he collided with an umpire. So it doesn't seem that he has any chronic problems that would seem to pose problems for the future. So hopefully... It some point he can just stay healthy. Nico was a hot topic this offseason. There were some big free agents on the market, and there was a lot of discussion about whether Nico Horner could play a good enough shortstop. Spoiler alert, he can. Or whether his high contact, low pop bat would play at shortstop. On the second question, Nico changed his script a little bit in the offseason. He came into the spring training 2022 a little bit bigger and stronger without sacrificing his speed or overall athleticism and clearly made a conscious decision to look for a little bit more pull in order to generate more power. Nico's probably not a guy who's ever going to hit 30 home runs, but his changes are clear this season. He's doubled his barrel rate from past seasons, increased his average exit velocity, and increased his average launch angle by 50%. 
it's still only an average launch angle of 10.2%, which means he's still getting a lot of balls as line drives and on the ground. But seeing it increase is promising for future power development. All of this means he's hitting the ball harder and elevating more pitches. And the success shows he already has a career high in doubles with 14, triples with three, and homers with six. The increase in pull and elevation really stands out in this hitting data. In his previous two full seasons, he hit roughly 70% of his balls up the middle or to right field. This year, he's pulling a full third of his batted balls and has also increased his up the middle rate a little bit. His fly ball rate is 33% higher than it was last year, still only 22% of his total contacted balls. And he's maintained his line drive rate. These numbers show a player making a clear effort to drive more baseballs and play to power. What's maybe even more impressive is that he's done all this while actually lowering his strikeout rate. His strikeout rate peaked at 19% in 2020, came down to 14.7% last year, and now is one of the best in baseball at a minuscule 10.4%. This is his latest evolution as a hitter, but he's made a number of other adjustments, which is critical for a guy who came up with so few minor league at-bats and who's had to figure it out at the big league level. When Horner first came up, as happens with a lot of players, he was challenged most often with fastballs. In his first action in 2019, he saw almost 60% fastballs, almost 40% breaking balls, and really only 4 or 5% off-speed pitches. When you break down what pitchers have thrown into specific pitches, he's constantly seen about 10% curveballs throughout his career, and he's primarily been attacked with the four-seam fastball, a slider, and the sinker. In 2020, he struggled against all those pitches, but last year he really hit the fastball well, putting up a 55% hard hit rate, which was up from 43% in 2020, and an ex-WOBA of 394. Ex-WOBA stands for expected weighted on base average and is based on exit velocity, launch angle, and for some types of battered balls, sprint speed, of which Horner has a ton. This makes it a good statistic for looking at with Horner because as he increases that effort to drive, as he increases exit velo and launch angle, directly correlates into this number. He's also had a little bit more success this year against sinkers than he had previously. As pitchers do, they adjusted, and Nico has been seeing fewer fastballs, down under 50% for the first time in his career, and more breaking balls and off-speed. The off-speed's gone from about 4% up to 15%. He had struggled pretty significantly with sliders prior to the season, and so far it's the pitch he's seen the most often this year, 25% of the total pitches. This is the pitch with his highest swing and miss rate, but now he's hitting 35% of them with hard contact and a 345 X Woba as opposed to 20% hard hit rate and a 251 X Woba last year. He's also seeing more sinkers, total of 17% of all pitches, and he continues to do damage on that pitch. This number pops off the page. He literally has a 0% swing and miss rate on 183 sinkers so far in 2022. With his speed and elite contact rates, he does make a clear effort to either drive balls or get them on the ground. His top ball percentage where he hits the ball in the top half and gets it on the ground is 37% this year. His solid contact rate, where it's fairly squared up, is 5%. And his barrel rate, which is where he hits the ball hard off the barrel, is 3.1, which isn't super high, but it is double any other year of his career. Where Nico still has room to improve is his chase rate, which is around 33%, meaning he'll swing at roughly one-third of pitches he sees that are outside the zone. While his contact rates are even high when he chases, he makes contact almost 70% of the time, those swings bring a lot of weaker contact. It also plays into his walk rate, which has fallen off by about half this year, down to 4.2%. He was around 10% last year. If Nico can hone his ability to recognize strikes and pitches he can drive and drop that chase rate, then his ability to make contact will really play and make him an even more dangerous hitter and potentially lead to developing more power. There's one former Cub I want to bring up that really stands out as a comp to Nico Horner during his first couple seasons. It's going to seem a little crazy at first, but I'm talking about Hall of Famer Ryan Sandberg. I'm not sure Nico will ever develop as much power as Rhino did late in his career, but their early career numbers are very similar. Through the first couple seasons, which consist of all of Nico's career and 1981 to 1983 for Ryan Sandberg, 
They were both players with good speed who hit the ball on the ground and played for batting average. Nico has a higher batting average than Rhino did and a slightly higher on-base percentage, but they both homered a little bit more than 1% of the time and had extra base hits around 6% of the time. Each struck out at a 12 to 13% rate and each walked about 6% of the time. Both were elite defensively and capable of playing multiple infield positions. Under the tutelage of then-Cubs manager Jim Fry, Ryan Sandberg famously worked ahead of the 1984 season to look for more opportunities to drive the ball, and it paid off. That year, he had an OPS of 887, which correlated to a 140 OPS+, plus, meaning he was 40% better than the average hitter that year. And he hit 19 home runs in what ultimately became an MVP season for the future Hall of Famer. That work to add drive and pop to a swing paid off for the rest of his career. For the five years from 1984 to 1988, Rhino posted a 118 OPS+, plus and averaged five wins above replacement per season. His homer rate almost tripled to 3%, and his extra base hit rate shot up to more than 8%. As Nico has shown this year, Sandberg's strikeout rate didn't really change, staying right around 13%, but his walk rate went from 6% to 8%. Sandberg stopped chasing as much, and pitchers stopped challenging him as often with fastballs early in counts. From there, Sandberg's power hit a new level. He hit 30 home runs in 1989 and 40 in 1990. From 1989 to 1993, Sandberg dropped his K rate to 12%, while pushing his homer rate to 4% and his extra base hit rate to 9%. He still didn't walk a ton, but he did up his walk rate to 9.3% as he became even a more dangerous hitter. During that span, he had an OPS plus of 135 and averaged six wins above replacement per season. I'm not sure, as I said earlier, that Nico can hit that second level of power that Rhino did from 1989 to the end of his career. But if Nico can continue building on what he's doing this year and cut that chase rate, I can absolutely see him being a 15-plus homer guy with a lot of gap power where he can use his speed, and that would make him a borderline elite offensive player. He's showing a lot of the same trends Sandberg did in the mid-1980s, which is really exciting for this guy who grew up idolizing Sandberg every summer watching on WGN. Nico's growth this season, assuming he maintains performance in the second half and can stay healthy, could give the Cubs a lot of flexibility this offseason. His defensive metrics are elite this year, and most numbers have him graded as the best overall defensive shortstop in baseball. So it's clearly proven he can play a major league shortstop. That said, the Cubs are going to need to find more offense this offseason. There's a lot of speculation that Carlos Correa will opt out of his contract with the Twins, and if he does, he'd join a pretty strong free agent class led by Trey Turner and Dansby Swanson at shortstop. The Cubs could absolutely stick with Nico at shortstop, or they could go after one of those shortstops and either get that player to play third base, as the Padres have done with Manny Machado, or move Nico back over to second base where he played gold glove caliber defense prior to this season. And frankly, he might even be more elite offensively at second base than he is at shortstop. The Cubs also have a number of shortstops in the minor leagues, including number three prospect Christian Hernandez, number eight prospect Kevin Made, and Ed Howard, who was a top five prospect prior to having hip surgery earlier this year. All three of those players are young and in the lower minors, so they really shouldn't play heavily into what the Cubs are going to do to compete in 2023. As I mentioned before, it's also important to remember that prospects are really just hopes and dreams until they deliver. At one point, Nico Horner was just a prospect. He's delivered. But as we discussed earlier, Braylon Marquez and Miguel Amaya haven't. They peaked out. They were top prospects, and they so far have not been able to bridge the gap and make it to the major leagues. Jed has done a good job of replenishing depth in the system, which is absolutely critical. You have to have many options up and down the minors at every position because they all won't develop and some will get hurt. Next week, we'll take a deeper look about where the Cubs stand once they make their trades. Will the Cubs package players to get some major league ready young talent or cost controlled pitching? Will Ian Happ still be a Cub? How many offensive holes will the Cubs need to fill this offseason? We'll have a much clearer idea in a week. 
Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe wherever it is you find your podcasts. I'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast as well as your thoughts about where the Cubs are and what they'll be doing over the next couple of months. You can become part of the conversation by engaging on Twitter at CubsPSplus. Enjoy the last days of Wilson Contreras in San Francisco and go Cubs!